0: Uh, David and Aki did a great job of saying this earlier, but um, again, if you are interested in serving or just even finding out more about our community, the best way to do that or the best next step would be to go to the Connection Tent after our gathering this morning and talk to some folks about that, or find those two guys and hear a little bit more about that. Would you guys like to be dismissed? Okay, youth, you are dismissed. (laughs) Uh, My bad. All right, um, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 13. And if you need one, raise your hand and someone will come around and make sure you have one of those. And as you're finding that, let me talk a little bit here for just a minute about where we are. We have been in this journey in Matthew now for quite a while, a few months. We are almost exactly halfway. In fact, next Sunday, which is again Easter Sunday, will be the halfway Point in our journey through Matthew. And we've been spending so much time in this book because as we think about the future of discovery, what the next thing is for us, where God is taking us as a community, we want to be... Uh, grounded in who Jesus is. We want whatever the next thing is for discovery to be uh, about responding to who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and in particular, this thing called the kingdom of heaven. We want to be a kingdom-minded community as we move forward together. And so we've been in this journey, and we're going to continue on for another uh, several months um, because, again, we want to be rooted in who Jesus is. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know uh, the last section of the book that we were in, and we've been looking at Matthew in, in <clears throat> parts or movements, the fourth movement that we just wrapped up, we were calling Kingdoms in Conflict, because what we, we were seeing is, is as Jesus begins to teach and live out and demonstrate what the kingdom of heaven is all about, it begins to run and bump up against other visions of the kingdom other expectations that people had. And in particular, this one group called the Pharisees, who were a very vocal and influential leadership group at that time, uh, are having a really difficult time with what Jesus is doing and the ways in which he is calling people to this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen that this conflict is not just a matter of differences of opinions, but it's become a matter of life and death. The Pharisees are now out to try to figure out how to kill Jesus, Now, we move today into a new section. We're going to be looking at community and how uh, Jesus starts building a community around this thing called the kingdom of heaven. I just want to note that conflict not going away. Just because we've moved into this new section, we'll continue to see that build. But for the next couple of weeks, again, we're going to lean into, learn about what does the kingdom look like in action, lived out in relationships together. What is this new community that Jesus Is forming. So that's where we've been. That's where we're going. Let's pause here for a moment and pray, and then we'll talk about the rest of Matthew chapter 13 and 14 here. Okay? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jeff and for John. I thank you for all of the people who serve here at Discovery to help make what happens on Sunday morning possible, to help make what happens during the week in our groups possible to help make what happens as we serve our city and our world possible. Thank you for the posture of servanthood here at this church. Would you continue to grow us in that posture? Now, God, as we turn our attention to your word, help us to slow down and to take a deep breath here for a moment so that we can be present here with your words. We can be attentive to your spirit. Help us to respond to what we hear today, even if it is challenging, even if it requires courage. God, give us the courage we need to respond to your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this thing that happens in in life where we grow up and we get to the point where we leave the, the home or our family of origin. And we go out into the world and we start to have these new experiences and we begin to change. And then there's this other moment that happens where we come home after having these, uh, these times away where we've grown and our worldview has expanded. And we come home and, and it turns out that we are super obnoxious. All right. Have you had this experience of leaving and coming home with all of your new views uh, and opinions about the world and no one is really excited to hear about it from you? I spent uh, the summer between my junior and senior years of college in the inner city of Chicago working on a a summer urban project there. It was a great experience, a very formative experience in my spiritual journey. And when I got home, I I just saw my hometown. Uh, I saw the church that I had grown up in a whole new way, completely differently. I saw injustice everywhere. and, And I just had zero tact And how I communicated this newfound passion to the people who had been a part of my life up to that point. My parents listened to these uh, online, so uh, in a couple of days they'll be blessed by this part of the sermon. Zero tact in sharing my passion, and then on top of that, I wish I had a good picture of this, but I don't, I I honestly do not. I, I grew my hair out long and I got my eyebrow pierced, so I was just gaining friends and winning influence in every possible way when I came home that summer. All right, this experience of returning home is the obnoxious person. Someone on our teaching team said it this way, the people who changed your diapers don't want to hear it from you. <laughs> I love that. The people who changed your diapers don't want to hear it from you. Now, a couple of things about this process. One, This is actually a good thing. I want, especially if you are a student who's going to be going home in a couple of months, this might be your experience. It's okay. It's actually a good thing. You've grown. You've been responding to what you've been learning, and those experiences are so important. So you need to give yourself a little bit of grace when you find yourself in that moment. You also need to give some grace to the people that you are returning to. They have not been on the same journey that you've been on. They're not ignorant jerks or or closed-minded people, unless they are an ignorant jerk and a closed-minded person. But for the most part, they just haven't been on the same journey that you've been on. So have some grace for them. And then know this. You are in good company because this experience is one that Jesus himself had. Today we begin in Matthew 13, verse 53. So if you have your Bible, read along with me. We're going to be looking at three different scenes, uh, starting here at the end of chapter 13 and moving into chapter 14. But we begin with this. Verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Now if you were with us last Sunday, you know what they're talking about here, what Matthew is saying here. The first 52 verses of chapter 13 is this long teaching that Jesus gives using parables and stories so he finishes that up he moves on coming to his hometown he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers they asked isn't this the carpenter's son isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James Joseph Simon and Judas aren't all his sisters here with us When then did this man get all these things and they took offense at him? The people who changed your diapers do not want to hear it from you. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now again, the larger context here, Jesus has been healing He's been teaching. He's been having these throwdowns with the religious leaders. His fame is spreading. He's been attracting these large crowds. And now he pauses for a moment to return home. And, And home most likely here refers to Nazareth. And the first thing he does is he heads into the synagogue, which would have been the focal point of worship and spiritual life in any Jewish community. It also just would have been a place that people gathered to hang out. He goes there. And he starts teaching, the initial reaction to all of this is amazement. Where, did, where is this coming from? And then that amazement very quickly turns to, wait a minute, we know this guy. This is Joe's kid. This is that kid that was nine-year-old sniveling on the bench at the Little League game because he got taken out of, of the game. Like We know all these things about you and where you're from and your brothers and your sisters. Who do you think you are? coming in here and telling us all of this stuff now it might seem like, like a strange uh, scene for Matthew to include here again after Jesus has been doing so many things out in public in this big long teaching why does he turn his attention to this uh, return home of Jesus well there are several tiebacks to moments that have come before that show up here as Jesus heads home First, we continue to see a a very repeated theme, which is this theme of acceptance and rejection. As Jesus goes around healing people and, and teaching and inviting them into the kingdom, we've seen over and over again, not everyone is down for Jesus and his vision of the kingdom of heaven. He's been rejected or misunderstood in several places by many different people along the way. And in fact, the stories that he just told, that long series of parables earlier in chapter 13, is all about this. It's all about how there are going to be some people who get it and some who don't. Acceptance and rejection. Second, well, this is this deeply human experience of coming home, and discovering that your new ideas and perspectives aren't welcome, Jesus hasn't really helped his cause at all. If you remember back to Matthew chapter 12, there was this scene. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to, he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, no Twitter back in the day, but word about Jesus was spreading quickly. And it's safe to assume that news of this scene in particular had made its way back to them. And so you're going to talk about your family like that and then come back here and try to be teaching us stuff like, Come on, man. You can't do that. And then third is the rejection of Jesus starts to pile up, and this is really important for where we're going next. We are seeing that the faith landscape of Israel is extremely bleak. Again, back to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. This bleak faith landscape. Now, it's one thing. to to go off to some other town and be rejected there. But it's a whole other thing when it is your own people. He's now encountering this bleak faith landscape at a very personal level. His people take offense at him. And in his own words, Jesus says, there's no honor for a prophet at home. And so he doesn't do much while he's there on account of, of their lack of faith. Now let's keep going. This is gonna be a radical shift in perspective, but look at the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 14 with me. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. So on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Now, this is a horrible story, right? And here we see Matthew shifts the focus from this scene of personal rejection to a, a totally different landscape. Big cut from one point of action to the other. And, and it's interesting. We, we, we see that, uh, again, word about Jesus is spreading. It's spreading all the way up the halls of power to this guy named Herod. Now, a, a point of clarification here. This is Herod Antipas he would have been the son of Herod the Great who has shown up already in this story. If you remember all the way back to Matthew chapter 2, there was this guy called Herod. He interacted with the Magi, and when the Magi told him there's a new king of the Jews who's been born, he kills a bunch of baby boys to try to wipe out that threat. So this is his son. And then there's an interesting contrast here between Jesus' hometown, not recognizing Jesus as anything special, and then Herod, concerned, that a prophet he killed has come back from the dead. So we see this apathy at home, this fear in the halls of power. In both cases, extreme misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he is up to. So what Matthew does here for a moment is slow the narrative down to fill us in on the tragic events surrounding the ending of John the Baptist's life. And again, just a a, a gnarly story full of all kinds of gross stuff. John is in jail in the first place because he had the audacity to call Herod out for sleeping with his brother's wife. Okay, Herod sleeping with his sister-in-law. And this jailing is the unfortunate result of speaking truth to power. When you go up against the powers of the day, when you speak truth to empire, oftentimes the result is that that voice is silenced. And this is what Herod has done to John. Now, it's Herod's birthday, and so he throws himself a party, and this is not a, let's have a few friends over and eat some cake kind of party. This party was likely full of of Game of Thrones level debauchery. And and then there's this scene where... uh, Herod's niece, so the daughter of his sister-in-law, does a dance for him. And not to be too explicit about this, but this is not a little girl coming in to, hey, Uncle Herod, I want to show you my you know, ballet moves. This is all sorts of wrong. It gets Herod excited to the point where he makes this foolish promise, and John's head ends up on a platter. This is an ugly, ugly scene. A scene that that furthers our understanding of the bleakness of the landscape. Back to Matthew chapter 11 one more time. There Jesus said this very cryptic thing. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. And here we see an example of this, the kingdom subject to violence, a violent person raiding the kingdom of one of its foundational prophetic voices. This is tragic. This is sad. And at some level, it raises the question of where is Jesus in all of this? Why doesn't he stop this? Why doesn't he intervene? Jesus, who's done so many healings, who has raised a girl back from the dead, why doesn't he step in and stop this? I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One is, again, back to this idea of when you go head to head with the empire, you will be met with violence. Throughout Matthew, though, Jesus has been teaching us that the kingdom of heaven has a completely different response to power. The kingdom response to the violence of the empire is not more violence. Jesus says, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. You are blessed when you are persecuted. The kingdom way to resist the violence of the powers of our world is to absorb it and to use that power against it. And this is in part what Jesus will do on the cross. All the violence of our sinful world gets directed onto him and he does not fight back with a show of power. He does not fight back with the sword. He fights back through love, by laying down his own life. He takes it all on himself. And in his death and resurrection, he transforms it into something new, into the forgiveness of sins, into reconciliation with God, into a new creation. And the underlying truth of this story is that what has happened to John is going to happen to Jesus. This is a foreshadowing moment in the Jesus story. Second, I think Jesus doesn't intervene here because he knows that that also is not the end of the story. Jesus knows that Herod is going to go down in history as a villain and a scoundrel, but John will go down as a hero who will one day fully experience the good news of the resurrection. Now, look at what happens next. our final scene this morning. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves and then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. I want to make a couple of observations about Jesus in particular in this scene. The first is this. Jesus here is in pain. I think sometimes when we think about Jesus as being the Son of God, God uh, uh, in human flesh here on earth, we think he's like this, like, Zen character who just sort of floats through life without any troubles. But Jesus here is in pain. He's been rejected at home. His good friend, his cousin, was murdered horribly. And he's frustrated by the bleak landscape of faith that he's been encountering all throughout Israel. And so he, he takes a moment to try to get away and, and to sit with this and to process this, to grieve for a bit. But he can't get away. Even here in this solitary place, the crowds find him. And this leads us to the second thing here. Jesus' response to this interruption is incredible. It, he's not frustrated or annoyed or, or, you know, guys, give me a, give me a minute here. i got to get myself together. No. He's moved by compassion. This is the second time we've been told by Matthew about Jesus' deep compassion for people. Third thing, Jesus is humble. This takes a a minute to unpack, so bear with me here. In In the midst of his pain and all of this need, he finds a way to teach his disciples something really important. They come to him, and they're like, hey, we've been here for a long time. These people are getting hungry. Let's send them home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus says, no, we don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. There's an important principle here. Problem spotters are problem solvers in the kingdom of heaven. We do this with our kids, trying to teach them, you know, uh, when you see something, like, how can you figure that out? How can you take care of it on your own? But the disciples don't see any possible way that this can happen, so Jesus takes what they do have, these Five loaves of bread, these two fish, and he multiplies it over and over and over again so that there's enough for everyone to eat and then even some extra left over. Now, look at verse 19 one more time. He gave the food to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the people. In this crowd of about 5,000, and that's just counting the men, so we're talking about a crowd of probably more like ten to 15,000 people, there's a very good chance that most of them had no idea what Jesus has done. All they know is they see the disciples passing out food, and they're grateful for this food. They assume they had something to do with it. In other words, Jesus doesn't take this moment and make it all about himself. He allows his disciples, who had no concept of how this was going to work, he allows them to get the credit. So here we see the pain, the compassion, and the humility of Jesus. And Jesus, in this moment, reminds me of Batman. Didn't see that one coming, did you? He, re- he reminds me of Batman, especially from this particular scene from The Dark Knight Rises. So watch this uh, with me here for a moment. We have 45 minutes to save this city. No, I've got 45 minutes to get clear of the blast radius because you don't stand a chance against these guys. With your help, I might. I'll open that tunnel, then I'm gone. There's more to you than that. Sorry to keep letting you down. Come with me. Save yourself. You don't owe these people anymore. You've given them everything. Not everything. Not yet. Now, if you haven't seen the the movies, um, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for you, all right? So... Just bear with this for a moment. This scene comes from the the final film of the Christopher Nolan trilogy. If you know the story, you know that that the the ending of the second movie, the Joker was a part of that. There's this uh, tragic moment that happens for Batman and he kind of goes underground for a period of time. And so this third film talks about or or shows us how he gets, he kind of comes out from the underground and starts fighting crime again and then when he starts showing up again in public Gotham actually rejects him and you hear Catwoman refer to that you know in that you don't owe these people anything they've turned their backs on you and so the story is about Batman getting to the place where not only is he fighting evil again but he's able to say I haven't given everything not yet. We find Jesus here in a similar place. Jesus, the human being in pain, reeling from this rejection and this tragedy. Jesus, the Son of God, moving from a deep compassion to lovingly provide for people. I haven't given them everything. Not yet. Now remember, I said this at the very beginning. In this movement now that we are in here in Matthew, we are going to be looking at the new community of the kingdom of heaven and so I think there's four implications that these three scenes have for us as we grow in a kingdom-minded community I want you to keep that Batman scene in the back of your mind because we'll come back to that in just a moment first implication is this the landscape today still bleak And I do not mean this in a fear-mongering or culture-bashing or Davis-bashing sort of way, but the reality is we need to name the moment that we are in, and the moment we are in is a bleak faith landscape. And this is an issue not just outside of the church. This is an issue inside the church. As well. The fastest growing category of spirituality is none. People who want nothing to do with any kind of uh, uh, religion or spiritual movement. Church attendance is down. Christians are very problematically supportive of certain political perspectives. And individualism, materialism, narcissism, you name it, all these isms are running rampant in our culture. And it is very easy to look at all of that and to look at the bleakness. Of the faith landscape and to despair. But this leads us to the second implication here. To be a kingdom minded community is to move from cynicism towards compassion. To be like Jesus, if we are going to be a community that shares the good news of Jesus with people, we must look at the broken condition of our world. We must be able to name it for what it is, but we never retreat or despair. We never pull back. We lead with compassion. And this is a hard truth, but one of the ways that we get in touch with compassion is to name the places in our life where we are wounded, where we are in pain, where we've experienced pain and rejection. This comes up a lot in my conversations with my spiritual director, but as I'm describing a particular challenge, he'll often look at me and tell me, Steve, this thing that you're in right now, it will make you bitter, or it will make you compassionate. What are you going to do with this? Will you let this open you up, or is this going to close you off? Is this going to draw you towards cynicism, or is this going to make you more compassionate? Compassionate. This leads to a third conclusion or a third implication. Some of our most effective kingdom work will come from our pain and our rejection will come from where we've been wounded. Now certainly we want to use our gifts, our talents, our competencies to participate in growing God's kingdom. But sometimes it's the most painful things that produce the most kingdom growth. The feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in all four Gospels. It is the only miracle to be described by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Also, this is the largest number, crowd-wise, we are given in the Gospels. Isn't it interesting that Jesus impacts the most people precisely at one of his lowest points? Maybe even his lowest point before the cross. Now back to Batman for a minute, I saw that movie in the theater by myself and it came at a particularly difficult moment for us when we were living in Boston. During that time, I had helped in the previous couple of years start two campus groups, one at UMass Boston, one at Northeastern University, and I had poured just a ton into both of those groups and they'd finally gotten to the point where they were growing and starting to flourish a little bit and some really exciting things were happening there, and then at that moment, we had a crisis with our Boston University community. Our, our two staff people there quit right in the middle of the semester, and there was this very dysfunctional dynamic on the student leadership team, and so I was asked to come in and try to stabilize that situation. And as I got involved in that, I discovered that there was one particular student who uh, was really the source of that, of that dysfunction. And so as I got to know what was going on and started to implement some changes and try to uh, heal some of the brokenness there, this particular student got really upset with me for basically taking control from them. And they started to lash out at me. I felt like Batman in this movie. Again, if you know the movie, there's a scene early in the movie where Batman's trying to stop a robbery and the police actually turn on him, think he's the bad guy and start firing on him. And I remember seeing them being like, oh, that's very eerily similar to ministry sometimes. Now, to make a long and complicated story short, I ended up removing this student from the leadership team. We had to have this hard conversation. It it happened uh, at the GSU, which is kind of like the MEMU here at Davis. And and so I'm sitting in this room with like 300 other people who are just trying to eat lunch and do some homework. And and this student just loses it, screaming at me, cursing me out, calling me all kinds of names, uh, how I've ruined their life in front of all these other people. And then uh, along with the drama there, Amy and I, during that season, we lost our first pregnancy. My dad was forced out of his job, and so my parents were going through a hard time. I had a panic attack in front of a large group of people when I was speaking in public. And and it just was like this year of really challenging, difficult things. And so I go to and I watch this Batman movie. And I'm probably the only person who went to the Dark Knight Rises and just was like weeping through the whole movie. Like it was Fried Green Tomatoes or whatever movie makes you cry. I'm just like, oh. And as weird as it sounds, God spoke to me through Batman. Steve, it's not over. There's more to do. There's more to explore. There's more to learn. There's more to give. And I look back on this now. This was almost seven years ago. All those circumstances taught me so many things about ministry and leadership, about pastoring, hurting people, about walking with people through infertility, about having compassion for those living with anxiety, about leading communities through trauma and change and difficult moments. Sometimes our pain becomes the source of our compassion. If we are to be a kingdom community, we will need Jesus to transform our pain and to grow our compassion for people who need good news. This all leads to one final thought here. Jesus will use whatever we have. Jesus will use whatever we have and he will multiply it beyond our wildest Imaginations, five loaves of bread and two fish, was nowhere near equal to the task of feeding 10 to 15,000 people. And yet Jesus uses this to feed everyone and then some. And I think too often we have a scarcity mindset. We think, oh, if only I had more. If only I had this kind of education or these experiences or access to these resources, then I could really be a blessing to people. If only I had more energy or more time. If only I could get myself together and get organized. Then God could really use me to do something. If only we had a building and a bigger budget, then we could do something to bless Davis. And Jesus does not say, what do you need? He says, what do you have? What do you have? Oh, five loaves of bread and two fish. Oh, we can use that. Yeah, we can use that. And he takes it and he multiplies it over and over and over again. What do you have? Not what do you lack, what do you have? And for us as a community, what do we have? Whatever it is, Jesus can use it. And again, he will multiply it beyond our wildest imaginations. He'll use it all, even our pain, to point people to the good news of his kingdom. What do you have? Let's pray. Father, I confess that all too often I look at the lack and I worry or I wonder or grow deeply concerned about how that will be overcome. And again, it's easy to look at the bleakness of the landscape and to think there's no possible way through this. How can we make a dent in this? Yet the example of Jesus is never to be intimidated by any of that, but simply to look around to see what he has and to take it and to multiply it. So Father, I pray that we would be open-handed with what we have, that we would allow you to take it and use it in whatever way you want to use it. God, for some of us, we we look at our life and we think, oh man, I've, I've been hurt too much. There's too much baggage there. God could never use me. And the reality is, that is exactly what God wants to use. And so we come to you this morning. We come seeking Jesus for healing and for wholeness, but also knowing that he will use those places of pain to bless people, to point people towards the good news of his kingdom and to point towards the good news that he is making all things new. Father, I pray if there are those here this morning who have never responded to this good news about Jesus that they would even right now in this moment. And for all of us, God, I pray again for the courage to respond today in whatever way that we need to respond, this reminder You were not immune to pain. You suffered in these moments, but also ultimately on the cross because of your deep compassion for us so that we might have life and have it abundantly. We are so grateful for that. And we pray all this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.